Welcome to Global Dispatches. I am your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this podcast, we discuss topical global issues and we go deep with foreign policy thought leaders and celebrities who discuss their life and career. My guest today, Jessica Jackley, is the co-founder of Kiva. I'm fairly sure you know what Kiva is. It's basically a household name in the do-gooder community. But in case you are unaware, it was the groundbreaking micro-lending platform that connects micro-investors with entrepreneurs in the developing world who need small loans to start or grow their business. Jessica is out with a new memoir, Clay Water Brick, that details her own story and tells the story of the founding of Kiva. We have a great conversation about her life experiences, entrepreneurship, starting Kiva, and then figuring out how to handle its explosive growth. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I have to slow down traffic to this thing because we need to grow carefully and responsibly. (laughs) And we keep running out of loans because we have so much traffic. I mean, that's a bizarre thing for a chief marketing officer to think about doing, right? This is a great conversation. And I should note that by coming on the podcast, Jessica and her husband, Reza Aslan, have become the first wife and husband team to appear independently on this show. My conversation with Reza is episode 64. Now, here is Jessica Jackley. Enjoy. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. As I've had these moments of pause in my life over the last four years. Um, I have three, three very young kids. I have twins that are three and a seven-month-old. And going into this season where things are a little slower and smaller and closer to home after my life had been much busier and frantic and fast-paced with travels all around the world and that sort of thing, as I reflect over the decade prior, I thought, gosh, I've been given so many wonderful experiences. And one of the best was this opportunity to start you know, more than one organization and to really become convinced through those experiences and through the travels that I had meeting entrepreneurs all over the world a lot through the, through those, you know, through those ventures and other work that I had done, I just be, had become convinced that it's possible to start things and to change, to change things in the world. And I really wanted to share that with people knowing how privileged and how lucky I have been to have these unique experiences. So I wanted to share those. And I wanted in the end for sort of my story and the stories of the people I've met along the way to inspire other people to work and to live more entrepreneurially. Um, it's a long word, entrepreneurially. <laughs> I wish it was I wish it was shorter. <laughs> I wish it was easier to spell. Um, but I I what what that means to me in short is that I think everybody can live in a way that's more um, hopeful, more um, solution finding and opportunity seeing, um, and really more just sort of, uh, I guess, proactive about finding ways to improve our own lives and improve the lives of people around us. So that's that's a, a long, 
long answer there. Well, it wasn't that long of an answer. <laughs> I, I, I've dealt with, I, I typically like open my <laughs> interviews with people who just wrote books with that same question. Yours was just in, in, in the sweet spot. Where do I fall? Yeah. Okay. Um, so <laughs> one thing about, uh, about your book that, that I found pretty interesting was how you connect the entrepreneurial experiences of, uh, of, of, entrepreneurs in East Africa or in somewhere in the developing world with your own entrepreneurial experience. Can you maybe just, you know, tell a few of the stories of the people that you met in your travels that you just referred to, uh, who are small entrepreneurs who benefited from microcredit and micro lending? Sure, I will. And, you know, to, before I do that, a little bit of a random question, but have you seen Slumdog Millionaire? <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. It's great. <laughs> okay. That's great, right? So I've seen it too, and I, I hadn't seen it for a few years and saw it again very recently and thought, oh, that's what my experience was really like. I, I didn't think about structuring the book in that way, but the truth is, as my journey has sort of unfolded, I've, I either real time have encountered an entrepreneur that's inspired me or pointed me in the right direction, or I'm able to reflect back and look at sort of, um, you know, these great experiences that I've had, these interactions that I've had and find inspiration there. So again, I'm hoping that's I love a it. A memoir inspired by Slumdog Millionaire. I mean, honestly, you know how, you know, every time for anyone who hasn't seen it, he's <laughs> the character, you know, the main character is, uh, has all these questions come at him on a who wants to be a millionaire show. And he knows all the answers because he looks at, or a lot of the answers, right? I don't want to ruin things, but he, um, man, can we edit that? <laughs> but he, <laughs> <laughs> he knows answers based on these crazy life experiences that he's had, and it seems, um, you know, almost too good to be true. But again and again, he realizes he's had some particular experience that's given him the wisdom he needs, and I feel that way too. So, I'll give you one example. I mean, the I'll give you a few actually. The title of the book, Clay Water Brick, is after an entrepreneur named Patrick, who sort of opens things up in the book. And this was this incredible man who I met uh, a decade ago who really started his, his entrepreneurial journey by literally rolling his sleeves up, getting his hands dirty, and we, we use those things as cliches, but he literally did this to dig into the earth underneath you know, where, where he was sitting at the time and to dig and find patches of clay. And as he found patches of clay, he'd mix them with water and found that he was able to shape that material and form it into bricks. And at first he made these rough and misshapen bricks out of his bare hands. And, you know, they cracked and crumbled easily, but he was able to practice and get better and better and eventually sell those bricks for just fractions of a penny each. But he did and that. this is in Uganda? This is in Uganda. You got it. You got it. So he was able to do that. And over time, he was able to save up little bits of money to slowly improve his business. And, you know, the first thing he did was buy a brick mold. Next, as he saved up even more from that because his production you know, doubled right away and he was able to make much more high quality bricks. He was able to save more quickly and he was able to replace his homemade implements with, um, you know, more professional ones, more official ones, a shovel and a trowel. And he learned how to build a self-contained kiln and bake his bricks as opposed to just letting them dry in the sun and could buy matches and all the other things he needed to do that. So this amazing guy just from almost nothing, right? From the ground beneath his feet. I mean, how poetic is that? He he builds this business and he just pulls out of the earth, brick by brick, everything he needed to build this amazing future for himself and his brother and to end up sort of lifting others around him uh, higher out of poverty as well. So Patrick, to me, is just this quintessential, amazing example of an entrepreneurial person. Somebody how who, does he feel about the uh, the book being named after him? Oh, you know what's sad? Um, 
what's sad is I have not a lot of these a lot of these entrepreneurs are from over you know at least ten the last ten years sometimes even far, a little bit farther back and um, I don't I haven't kept in touch with Patrick so he doesn't know <laughs> I should, I be, I should he, he will one day I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, I would love that. I did actually, I have spoken with a handful of entrepreneurs, others who are in this book. There's Shona, and I can tell you these stories very briefly too. Shona um, and Layla and others I've actually spoken with over the last month. I ran into this one woman, Layla Velez, who was a part of the founding team of Beleza Natural, a um, a salon in Brazil, <laughs> which sounds you know, maybe not, maybe not like it would fit in with the rest of these entrepreneurs, but this this incredible. She's sort of this mogul throughout Brazil and beyond. She started this incredible salon that was inspired by the sort of assembly line process that she and her co-founders had experienced working at McDonald's. They 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 have this amazing thing where you walk into the salon um, and you sit down and sort of work with one person for one step of the process. Then, you know, you, you kind of have a consultation. Then you go to the next person, a whole new station with a kind of a specialist there who may, might wash your hair, for example. Then you get up, you don't work with the same person. You go to the next person at another station who's a specialist in maybe, you know, doing the cut or doing the color. Anyway, it's it's an incredible thing that sounds... Um, Sounds like not a big deal, but what they did that was so revolutionary is not just this process and not just creating their own line of products, but they focused on sort of, you know, what what some folks might call a bottom of the pyramid customer, but they focused on women whose hair was very curly and kinky and they they weren't being served by higher end, uh, fancier, maybe more expensive salons. But they started, Layla and her partners started to serve this other segment and really things just have taken off beautifully. It's basically like a franchise in Brazil. Yeah, exactly. And she's just like, they've, uh, well, actually it's not technically a franchise, but yes, they have lots of different, lots of different salons now, many different centers and serve, I don't even remember the numbers offhand, but you know, thousands and thousands of people there, there will be several hours worth of, um, waiting in a line, even just to get in on the weekends. Cause it's so popular. And I met her at a, I saw her again recently it, by accident at this conference three weeks ago in Berlin, because of course, of course she's just this powerhouse now and was, uh, was at this amazing gathering. So anyway, I, it was a real, it's a real rags to riches story. And there are many others like that in the book. Um, so the book also tells your story, which I, I'd like to trace as well. You're, I think most of my audience will probably know you as the you know, co-founder of Kiva. Um, but let's, let's you know, turn back the clock a little bit. So where, where were you born? What, what sort of family were you born into? Yep. I was born, um, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, <laughs> outside of Pittsburgh, actually. I just say it cause that's where people know. But technically I was born at a little town, Oil City, Pennsylvania. I mean, very little, small little place. And um, my mom is a school teacher. My dad is um, a consultant and has done different projects sort of throughout his career. And my brother, my younger brother, I have one brother, two years younger, and he grew up to be a pastor in a local church near where we grew up. So I grew up in this lovely, wonderful, supportive um, family and just they they really instilled in me incredible values, I think, as did my 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 experiences going to Sunday school as a kid. But church was a big part of our lives. And um I'm really grateful for that. What I, denomination I, were you guys? Well, we went to an old, sleepy sort of Presbyterian church until high school. And then when we moved, you know, we moved across town, across Pittsburgh. And while it was, I mean, gosh, not even an hour's drive, it was like a different world. Uh, <laughs> I can't, I went to a high school or I went to a middle school where I was, you know, in the minority uh, racially and um socioeconomically, I guess. And then we moved to a different area where it was just a, a diff- it was a different scene. It was a very different scene. And 
made me sort of step back and think about a lot of different things. I actually don't talk about that much in the book, but it was a big deal, that move. Anyway, we, um, yeah, we made this move and then we started to go to this evangelical church, sort of a non-denominational Protestant experience. Um, Why? What, what, what made that big shift from, because in the book you talk about the ways in which, you know, your early religious experiences helped inform your social conscience. Um, so in, in, I guess in, in what, like what, why did you change? Why did you switch to an evangelical church? It was just kind of part and parcel of the move when it was one of these churches where, you know, well, let me step back. I went to a public school, public high school. There were like 700 kids in my class, just my class. Um, it was a huge place and a great school, but I'd say, you know, a good solid half of them (laughs) went to this Sunday night sort of youth uh, group at the church, this this other church, this evangelical church. So it was really very much part of my sort of fitting in socially and part of my identity at, with this move. The people that I met, the people I got to be friends with did this. And so that's sort of the church that we were drawn to. And I guess how did, did the church influence your your social conscience? Yeah. Well, look, from a very young age, there was I was kind of immersed in talk about service. And I had my my sort of opportunities. There were opportunities all the time to kind of experiment and participate in sometimes good ways and sometimes, you know, maybe neutral ways in terms of the actual impact they had. But I got to experience a lot and that helped shape my opinions starting starting early on. Um, I do remember learning outright about poverty in a Sunday school class, and I remember hearing some things that both motivated and confused me. On the motivational side, I remember hearing, uh, you know, scripture that told me, "What you do for the least of these, you do for God." And I thought, "Oh my goodness, I am in. This is amazing. This is like the world's. This is like a cosmic homework assignment." And I was a, you know, I was a kid that wanted to do well by everyone around me, by my parents, by my teachers, etc. So I, I thought, well, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go nail this. This is gonna be great. I'm gonna go figure out how to help people who are living in poverty. But I also heard messages. Um, you know, I heard different scripture in these Sunday school classes that told me the poor would always be with us, and that was terrifying and kind of devastating. I remember thinking, well, what the heck? I'm being given this charge, this mission to go serve the poor, but I'm being told they'll always be around. I don't get it. (laughs) And I think those two sets of feelings of being both motivated, but maybe deep down questioning whether or not what I could contribute would ever be enough, would ever be something important. Those kind of feelings followed me around for decades and took a a long time to sort out. Um, I definitely had this deep longing to be important in the lives of the poor and to do something meaningful and that would be impactful over the long haul. But I, I genuinely wondered if that was possible, given so what I would hear. What were the first ways in which you made that that um, experience manifest? Like, how did you actually take this this belief that you have and, and actualize it, make it you know, start working on behalf of you know disadvantaged people around the world? Well, there were a lot of opportunities that came to me, Um, again, mostly through church, but through my high school and other things too. Through church, um, there were some things like that we would do weekend service trips into downtown Pittsburgh and work on people's homes, for example. Not Habitat, exactly. Habitat for Humanity, a great organization that I I serve actually on their board of directors that I love. But it, it wasn't that. It was just sort of through local organizations, fixing things up and giving people what they needed. And I remember 
you know, for example, once going to a house where there was a person sort of sitting outside, he was somehow associated with the home. But he was sitting outside sort of just messing around with, you know, his, it was like a Game Boy or a, or a Walkman or something. <laughs> and I remember thinking, wait, here's, you know, this team of sort of small framed, uh, you know, high school kids from a wealthier suburb, at, you know, a little bit outside of the city who have slept in. We were kind of struggling to do our job there. We were carrying this heavy ladder and lugging paint cans around to sort of whitewash this side of the house. And there was a person there who wasn't contributing. And, I, you know, that was just one little experiment, one little experience. But I had other ones too. I did a, you know, I did missions trips that were interesting and heartbreaking and quite overwhelming at times to figure out what did we do? What did, you know, how much did we help? What's, what's going to change in the long run? So anyway, I, I had a lot of opportunities to put these ideas into action. And honestly, it was just, it continued to be a real mixed bag for me. Um, I also got to contribute not just with my time and energy and, you know, volunteering on Saturdays or after school, but through making financial contributions. Now they weren't huge. <laughs> I've, I haven't been in the high net worth donor category or anything, but I was, you know, I'd throw my change in the jar, so to speak. I'd, I'd sponsored kids. I'd see Sally Struthers on TV and I'd call the 800 number and chip in. Um, but it was confusing to me. It, it sort of felt like, you know, the more I gave, the more, on one hand, I, I, I was told in these sort of form letters I would get back from organizations, I would be thanked and I would be told that what I had done it was extremely valuable, but there was always a need for more. It felt endless and Again, it felt, I don't know, overwhelming. Almost like disempowering. Like the whole point was, right, you're supposed to be empowered right. to, to contribute right. to this problem, but it seems overwhelming. It did. And, you know, I've, I speak about this, I write about this in the book too, but there's a, a somewhat well-known, at least in, in maybe, you know, philanthropy, social sector kind of circles, but there's a somewhat well-known campaign that was done years ago Um and Which I would, one? I well, I remember I received, uh, I re it was from one of these organizations that does um, cleft palate uh, surgeries and repairs for kids, and I remember getting a, a letter in the mail that said, "Thanks so much for your recent donation, and, and if you give today, we promise we'll never bother you again." I think I'm getting that almost verbatim, and I remember being completely spun around by this. Like I saved it um, for a long time. I saved this little thing because I thought, "What in the world?" On one hand. You know, I've been told in other messaging that this is such a great opportunity. You're so valuable. We need you. We can't go on without you. You need to help this person, blah, 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 right? And it, all that's wonderful and, and made me feel really good about contributing. But there's it was, it was a bizarrely self-aware campaign. Um, I mean, I don't necessarily – I'm not giving it my stamp of approval or anything. But it was a little bit self-aware because I think that organization sort of had gotten the message that – on one hand, people were feeling, you know, and should feel very honored to help out. But on the other hand, that that organization sort of sensed, look, we know we're bothering you. You want us to go away. Just like pay us off now and we'll leave you alone. Yeah. It was so weird. But I think it speaks to this bizarre dynamic that can exist sometimes between donors and the organizations that serve beneficiaries. Like, you know, we're going we're gonna to make you feel like crap sometimes to get you to care enough to give so you can feel better about yourself. I'm, I'm being kind of harsh here. And then, you know, for it, in, in return, you'll get to feel better temporarily until we reach out again. And gosh darn it, we definitely will to get you to give again because actually things are changing and things are getting better, but not enough so that you're off the hook. So anyway, you get where I'm going with this. I'm, I'm, I'm 
Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, that's that's like really interesting the way we put that. Just you know, it's both empowering but also totally depressing that the just you know the the the, the problems are are so monumental and and so yeah. huge that um, you know it, it it never ends. Um, so yeah. you've been doing you were doing this all throughout high school. You're growing up. Um, yeah. Uh, did you, I mean, you, you know, where did you end up going to, to school, to, to college? I went to Bucknell university and I had, I studied, I was a liberal arts major. So I had, a, I studied philosophy and um, political science technically were my majors. And then my minor was poetry and, uh, you know, note, note that entrepreneurship and business are not on that list. They were things that I felt very, very, um, very removed from, very alienated from. They did not seem to be related to my life at all. And I just had no interest. If anything, I was sort of a hater. I thought, well, my goodness, the organizations that I see doing good work in the world, in my very naive black and white view of things, um, <laughs> those <laughs> those organizations are nonprofits. So for profits, businesses must be bad. If nonprofits are good, businesses are bad. I don't want to have anything to do with them. And so I kind of avoided, I avoided all of that. I, um, it didn't really click for me until years later that perhaps entrepreneurship and business skills and business thinking could be used to make, uh, you know, to be helpful in the lives of people in need. But I did come around eventually, years after I graduated, um, thankfully, because I got this temp job, this temporary administrative job right after college at the Stanford Graduate School of Business of all places. I um, This is not prescriptive for any, you know, soon to be graduate out there. I am not recommending you all go do this. Just that's my disclaimer. But I, I graduated college with my newly minted philosophy and poetry and, you know, political science degrees. And I thought, I'm going to move across the country to California to follow a boy because I was in love with the boy. Again, not like this great career move. But I did that. And I got a temp job at a business school. Um, and it's funny because I, as I was there, it turns out that I got this job in the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford Business School, which was perfect because I got to be around people thinking about how to make the world a better place um, by using their MBAs and using their their business acumen um, to sort of apply to social problems. And I, I, I very soon realized I'd, I'd landed in a pretty special place. So you were, you were there as an executive assistant. Did any of the like the the big wigs in the business school sort of recognize that you had this you know the the, the special interest or special enthusiasm that maybe you were not like just an executive assistant, just <laughs> just someone's secretary? Well, I'll tell you what I was. Um, I I don't know if they realized, but I I decided to um, just put get in there. I I was. Um, I was pretty aggressive. I sat in on classes when I could. I sat in the back. <laughs> I crashed lectures. I literally showed up at professors' office hours sometimes. And after all the MBA students had, you know, been there or talked to folks, I said, "Hey, I'm not a student. I'm a staffer. But can I ask you questions?" I sort of was in their face and their faces a lot. And I, over the three years that I was there in that admin role, I did learn. I did learn a lot. Um, Look, I had to go back later. I went back later and paid for my MBA at Stanford. But I think it really speaks to the institution. It's a very special place. Everyone is sort of part of this great community, uh, or they have the option to be. And I wasn't excluded from that. Now, it just whet my appetite. I wanted more. I wanted to go through that experience of being a student. But to their credit, you know, even in-demand professors spent time with me and and. I got to befriend some of them. I remember one in particular, and there are, there are actually quite a few. Um, I'll say two, actually. Jennifer Ocker is a marketing professor, and she continues to be an incredible friend and mentor. Actually, just gave her a call today. She's it, she's she's amazing, and we started to um, we started a you know a friendship 
years back, right, even before I became a student. And then Jim Patel, who actually works in the design school as well as the business school, um, he really became a mentor to me, and there's a story about him in the book. But he was one of the folks that encouraged me, again, about three years in, to be brave enough to leave that job and follow my dream to go work in East Africa. And that's where I met people like Patrick, and that's what inspired Kiva. So uh, it was while you were uh, an assistant uh, at the business school in Stanford that you first encountered Mohammed Yunus, right? That's right. I heard so, him speak one day after work, yeah. What 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 happened? Tell, describe that moment. Yep. Well, I knew that he was coming to campus. Um, there was this email blast that went out, I think, just earlier that day. And by the way, to just put a timestamp on it, it, it was the fall of 03, okay. three years before he and the Grumman yeah. Bank would win. Yeah, yeah that's right. The so they won Prize. like 06, right? Exactly, yeah, exactly. For the Nobel so Peace I hadn't Prize. I heard yeah. of the guy. <laughs> I just thought, well. Not many people had, this? right? Yeah. He, was, he sort of came from, from nowhere and then, you know, became suddenly like overnight became became a star yeah he uh, yeah it was kind of amazing well i look back now um there's a recent ted talk i think it was bill wait who was it who was it oh shoot i could look it up but anyway there was a recent ted talk about sort of what's the most important factor in startup success and it was timing right to be in the right place at the right time yes you got to have all the other things great idea great team great execution but it's timing um that really matters at least that's his theory um he runs idea lab here i'm just blanking for a minute on his mm -hmm. name but anyway i i look back and i realize wow when Kiva started in, you know, our pilot round was spring through the fall of 05. That was the year of micro credit at the UN. That was right as Dr. Yunus was about to win the Nobel Prize. There, there were a lot of things trending in microfinance at the time. I didn't really realize it at the mo at that time. But looking back, I see that that was a big deal, that we, we happened to start this thing. The world was just, just ready for it. So um, what was that lecture by, by Yunus like back in, in 03 when you yeah. met him? Yeah, well, he spoke about there are a few things. One, he spoke about microfinance. It was news to me. In particular, of course, he spoke about microloans, which sounded amazing and like this incredibly powerful tool for change at the, you know, when the right amount of capital was placed in the right hands at the right moment in time with the right training. Just sounded like a really phenomenal option for people and not the kind of um, response to poverty that I had ever heard of before, not sort of just a, a short-term fix, but something that seemed it could be have a long-term long impact. So that was one thing. The second thing was he talked about his own story in a very accessible way. He talked about, um, you know, being this university professor, which of course that wasn't something that I was or anything, but when things really started for him, it, or sorry, things really started for him when he sort of sat down with a group of women in a village nearby, not in the halls of academia, but just sitting down with people and asking them about their lives and their stories and asking these women directly why they thought they were poor. That's when things really started to to click and he had these really important insights about providing them a fair loan uh, because banks wouldn't. So that was really inspiring to me to think that this great man had started his journey in a really accessible way, in a way that kind of anybody could, sitting down and asking really good questions, and then being a good listener. Um, so that was huge. That was incredibly inspirational. And then third, most importantly, he talked about the poor in a way that I hadn't really heard before. He talked about smart, strong, hardworking people who, yeah, definitely needed access to some resources, but they were doing everything right. They, they were they were working harder than anyone else, by the way, to lift themselves out of poverty, and they'd continue to do so. All they needed was access to this resource and some training, ideally. Um, 
that was game changing for me. I wasn't her hearing stories that were just focused on sadness and suffering that were sort of designed to make me feel bad, like maybe guilty or even shameful about my own relative wealth or panicked about the enormity of a problem. They were just, he was talking about people that sounded kind of awesome and intriguing. And after having spent a few years in Silicon Valley, I thought, you know, entrepreneurship, that this was the thing. Being an entrepreneur was the greatest thing you could be. So to see the poor through that lens was huge for me. And it was so huge, in fact, that after that lecture, a few weeks later, I ended up quitting my job uh, at Stanford and moving to East Africa to work for a tiny nonprofit there, actually based in San Mateo, uh, but actually that has worked in East Africa for decades, called Village Enterprise. And they, it's funny, they don't even provide um, micro credit, micro loans. They provide micro grants, um, or at least that's the core product. So it wasn't even the thing that I learned about, but it was close enough. It just shows you my, you know, business acumen at that point in time. I thought, oh, it's close enough. It's kind of like a loan. It's kind of like a, a loan. It's a grant. Uh, it's just as money going one way. It's 50% of the process. I'll learn about the other 50% later. <laughs> but I went and it was enough. It was enough for me to start to learn and to start to understand what a microenterprise um, and what microenterprise development could do in the life of an individual. So I have to imagine, like in your career since that moment you met Eunice, you probably had the chance to like you know, talk with him and meet with him, probably in, mm -hmm. in pretty intimate settings. Uh, what I mean, what, what were those conversations like? Oh, with Dr. Eunice? <laughs> yeah. So it's funny. At the very beginning, I remember you know I've seen a, a handful of times since. You're right, and I've often gotten quite emotional about it. Um, now he knows me and it's not as weird for him probably, this mm -hmm. crying girl like running up to him to hug him and say, thank you, you've changed my life. But I've talked to him since then and in fact, have it even been on yeah. panels and on talks with him. It's been kind of amazing for me. But uh, he, I he, It's not just you. He has that effect on other people. I, I've met him a couple times and just like ran up to him and took a picture. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like a total fanboy. Yeah. Totally. I mean, you know, look, there's... I get it. Microfinance isn't microcredit isn't a silver bullet. I don't think he's ever claimed that. I've never claimed that. I I know that there's been some criticism over the last few years, especially uh, around all of that, and it's been some of it's been directed at him. But I have to say, he I think is an incredible individual, a real leader, and someone who yeah he has this presence. I I love that you're a fanboy. <laughs> I mean, I still sort of. I, you know, I still sort of get my adrenaline gets going when I see him because I think, oh, I'm in the presence of a really great person. So um, we've had, you know, I've had some really wonderful kind of um, out of body experiences where I, I can't believe I'm getting to speak with him or share my opinions with him. Um, so how did you so, so you you with with your organization that, that you uh, joined with, you went to, to Africa for the first time. That's right. Where did where did the the idea of kiva uh originate in that trip so well let's go back so it was the the first time um i went to east africa for this kind of work i'd been there once before in the spring of 99 with um semester at sea which is a whole other story really wonderful program in college where you go around the world on a ship and it's you get college credit it's like the best um <laughs> <laughs> anyway but i was back with village enterprise in Kenya, and Uganda, and Tanzania, doing these impact surveys um, and asking entrepreneurs who had received these $100 grants how it had changed their lives. It was incredibly inspiring. And I heard again and again that, you know, this little bit of money had really given people 
a, not just to change trajectory because perhaps they'd actually done so well with the money that their business had really grown and they had a different kind of income and a different standard of living because of it. But there were these other details, these sort of qualitative details, these harder to explain through, you know, an impact survey or a standard of living questionnaire like I was using, but easier to explain through stories, right? Here's a woman who pre-loan or pre-grant didn't wasn't very confident, didn't lift her eyes to make eye contact when she spoke to people, didn't really speak loudly, didn't shake someone's hand. And and after having this experience of being given an opportunity to grow her daily sort of business-related activities into something that could really provide a sustainable livelihood for herself and her family, she was a different, you know, she had a different level of confidence and her self-esteem had changed and she just saw possibility and potential in herself in a new way. So I guess I, I guess those kinds of interactions and that kind of exposure led to some what if questions that I started to ask um, with my co-founder, Matt Flannery, who was back in San Francisco um, during that during that time I was in East Africa. He came out for two-ish weeks of the, you know, three and a half months I was there. So we had this wonderful overlap where we got to brainstorm live together on the ground while we were there. But otherwise I'd be on the phone with him every other day and we started to ask a few things. You know, what if we could tell this new story of the poor, not the one we'd heard growing up of sadness and desperation and hopelessness, but this story of entrepreneurship. And what if we could give people a new way to respond, not just, you know, throw your money in the jar and go on with your day or your week and feel better temporarily. But what if people could engage as a business partner? That would feel really different. And so, again, I, I look back at several moments in my in my life and in, in my career and think, well, this was naive. But you know what? It's Thank God it, it, it helped me proceed forward in a really um, – optimistic way without knowing how hard things would be. So that was a good thing. But I remember thinking, you know, why isn't anyone doing this? Why isn't anybody allowing, uh, make, allowing everyday people to lend 25 or 50 bucks towards, you know, the loan needs of an entrepreneur? Um, and, and Matt Flannery, who you referenced, uh, yeah. were, were you married at the time? He's your, the, the co-founder of Kiva we and, were. and we your were. Uh, former husband. Um, That's right. And like what, what role at this point did he play in, in the founding? I mean, it, you're describing this, this, the insights that you have. My understanding is he has like more of a technical background as was able totally. to you know, turn this idea into like a website That's uh, absolutely or in, into, right. into like an interactive platform. Um, right. So how did you make that leap then? How, how did you um, together, uh, I, I suppose, you know, turn your vision into an actual substantive thing that's manifest on, on the internet? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it made a lot of sense. We actually, it, we actually complemented each other quite nicely. I was sort of external partnerships facing on the ground, working with entrepreneurs. I had language skills that made it really e a lot easier for me to get around East Africa. I speak, well, I spoke, <laughs> I spoke Swahili pretty well for a few years, but it's rusty now. And I spoke French, and I, I was able to kind of get around Africa, and that's where we started. Um, and Matt would be back home. He was more internal facing, and absolutely, you know. It's not easy to run circles around me in terms of um, being uh, able to build technology better than me. It's not even a question. I, I didn't contribute to that aspect at all at the time. I would I would draw pictures on pieces of paper and say, what if there was a button here? I would spec things out, but he was the one really um, – you know, burning the midnight oil and coding and building the actual platform. And then once we had something very basic up um, in the spring of 05, I went back to East Africa. I'd been there almost a year earlier with Village Enterprise, but I went back and I took pictures of seven entrepreneurs throughout Uganda. I uploaded the stuff to this little website that Matt had 
cobbled together. It had like, you know, three different sections, I think home, about, and here, here are the profiles of entrepreneurs. <laughs> so it was a simple little website. We didn't even have online payment processing. It was just, you know, my like my grandma handing me cash and saying, lend it to the goat herder. It was really low tech at first, but he had built uh, certainly an adequate platform to be able to get started. And we did so with these seven entrepreneurs in Uganda in the spring of 05. And, um, you know, I, it's funny. I remember feeling very nervous to spam our friends and family and say, hey, we're still working on the details, but we have this little idea. Do you want to participate? Um, we have seven entrepreneurs who need about 3000 bucks. We think they'll pay you back. What do you say? But overnight, people did contribute those funds. And over the next six months, those entrepreneurs received the loans and repaid. And we thought, well, look, our, our little experiment worked. Let's try this again. So we took the word beta off of the site. We found a, you know, a dozen or so more entrepreneurs that needed loans. And that was sort of our official launch in October of 05. And somehow that first year, October 05 to 06, we facilitated about 500,000 in loans. So, and the next year it was about- I mean, 15. that's crazy. That, that no, just, it's crazy. I, that, well, that, next, that's like such a rapid, like, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, the next year was 15 million, the next 40, next 100. I mean, it was ridiculous. Um, so, and now Kiva's almost at a billion dollars. I mean, it's, 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 it's about at 750 million in loans in these little $25 bits from people all over the world. I just, those are numbers I don't even know how to process. So when did you realize that Kiva was going to be the phenomenon or was a phenomenon, not just some, some experiment that, that you and your husband and a few friends put together? Well, I, this is going to sound super cheesy, but you know I'm a I'm a mom of these three little boys right now, and I'm I'm so grateful for this for that. I love that role <laughs> of being a mother, and I you know I look at them and they do the tiniest things, and I am so proud. I think it's I think it's the biggest deal in the world. Now look, I have a, I do have a a, uh, a little bit of perspective. I get it. It's not <laughs> it's not something that I probably everybody who would if they saw this little thing happen in their lives would think it's the greatest thing in the world. But I was, I'm just, I'm so proud every day of every little thing they do. I felt that way about Kiva too. So it sounds silly, but I remember bursting through the doors of the business school to start my MBA program in the fall of 05 when Kiva's pilot round was midway through and like telling everyone who I met, oh my goodness, I'm doing this project. It's called Kiva. It's so great. You should check it out. We have seven whole entrepreneurs that we've funded and feeling really excited about it. Now, the numbers really started to click over, I guess, about a year in because that whole, um, you know, the whole first year it started to grow, but we just didn't know how, we just didn't know how, um, I don't know, we didn't have much to compare it to, I guess. There wasn't anything quite like it. So yeah, the first year as things started to accelerate, getting to 500,000 in a year felt like a really big deal. But then there was this PBS Frontline World special, a 15-minute special that um, they did on Kiva. And Matt and I went back to East Africa for it. And it aired Halloween night, you know, October 31st, 2006. Is that right? Yeah, 2006. I totally remember seeing it. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Guess what? That next week was 500,000. So In one think, week. Yeah. So all of our existence up till that moment, 500,000. The next week, 500,000. Like and that's how? even that was that was just like we didn't know what to do with ourselves. So that's when we that that is a really memorable moment um, for me because there were other indicators, but th th it was just unlike we didn't know what to do with ourselves. We were just sort of white knuckling it from that point forward for a while. Like what? Well, I mean, how, how do you handle? I mean, being like so successful so quickly. I mean, it seems like you know, for perhaps people with different dispositions or or in different circumstances, it's almost like a recipe for disaster. Um, 
Oh, how did you? It was all great. I mean, I think it was. I think it's weird because you don't always know what's working and what's not. Like, you know, did Kiva succeed that next year? Like, if things are just taking off so quickly, you don't know what's because of you or what's in spite of you. You don't know. Um, you know, the levers aren't as clear. Uh, you can certainly. It's funny. I mean, I was. I didn't even have a title for the first like two years. I don't. It was. That's another story. I just didn't really get around to it. I kept giving titles I thought I would have or should have away to other people because I was, I was really excited to get them involved. It's silly, but um, you know, at one point I was chief. I was chief marketing officer, and I remember thinking, "Oh my gosh, I have to slow down traffic to this thing because we need to grow carefully and responsibly, <laughs> and we keep running out of loans because we have so much traffic." I mean, that's a bizarre thing for a chief marketing officer to think about doing, right? So, it, yeah, it, it was a weird experience. It was a great experience, but a little bit of a strange one too. How involved are you in in it today? So you you m- made note that Matt and I were married when we started Kiva. A few years in, we got divorced, and I ended up stepping away from Kiva around that time as well. Over the you know the months following our separation, and so from that point on, I haven't been. I mean, I haven't been full time staff for years. I've been on the board since then, but I've stepped away from that too. Right now, I sort of just casually advise. I, I speak to staff somewhat frequently. I was there actually two weeks ago as part of the book tour and got to hang with everyone for a nice few hours. It was really, it was really enjoyable. <laughs> but my relationship is um, is not official at this point. It's really just, I, I feel like, again, to just go back to the parenting analogies, I feel like a grandparent, I think, because I get to be really proud and cheer the team on, but I'm not like changing the diapers every day. I'm not there <laughs> doing the hard work in the office every day, for better and for worse. I mean, my gosh, I, I love it. I love, you know, it's my baby. I love, um, I'm really mixing my analogies now. No, but no. I, Listen, I have the same relationship with my it. online properties, UN Dispatch right. and, and the podcast. Right. And I have like a real live breathing two-year-old and, and one on the yes. way. So I, I, I understand the, the mixed emotions as well. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's good. I mean, it's a good thing. And to think, oh, gosh, I get to be a part of starting something that now – is independent and it's on its own. I feel like I just fast forwarded through some parenting experience and now it's out in the world. You know, no strings attached. It's a it's a publicly owned entity. You don't leave a nonprofit and cash out, at least financially. You you sort of wave it and on its way and cheer it on from afar. So I imagine my boys are almost four. I imagine another 14, 15 years I'll have to re-experience this again. <laughs> and it'll be a lot harder. But um yeah, I mean, I think that's what good parenting is, right? So hopefully that's part of what being a good entrepreneur is too. Um, so we just have a, a few minutes left, but since since you and Reza are my very first spouse um, interviewees on uh, oh, the yay. podcast, yes, yes, you, you you two you two broke that yes Reza broke that barrier. Peter Extraordinaire, the author of <laughs> Zealot, is that who yes, <laughs> yes, that guy. How, so that. how how did how did you and him meet? So we met through friends. They introduced us, and it was a really funny, um, pretty blunt email introduction that was basically, "You guys should meet. Go out. Tell us how it goes." <laughs> I knew the I know the husband. I knew the husband. I know both of them now, and he knew the wife of this couple. And um, so we sort of awkward, awkwardly were like, "Hi, I guess we should. Go, I guess we should get together." <laughs> and the rest is history. So we're very we're very grateful to them. We had. Well, you we had- both are very excellent over email, I must say. Oh, well, thank you. It was definitely, um, yeah, it was definitely an email relationship for at least a month or two. And then, I mean, I was, I, I was, I was hooked. I met him and I felt like this is, this is it. This is, this is my person. And yeah, <laughs> don't, don't, this is a bad question to ask me because now I'll just want to talk and talk about, about him. But he's, 
he's so special. He doesn't fit in any kind of boxes. Um, you know, you, we talked about my faith earlier. It, you know, I'm married to a very loud Muslim and it's, I'm, I'm better for it. <laughs> not something that my, my Christian family ever expected and maybe not something I ever expected, but we have a, an amazing relationship and I'm, I'm grateful for him every day. Um, so, um, what's, so what's, what's next for you? you have the, the book tour right now. Um, uh, what else is what on, else on your agenda before we wrap up? wrap up? This is a good opportunity to plug in. Oh, oh, I hear you. I hear you. Well, one thing I've been consulting over the last year, year and a half, with companies not just on social impact um, and sort of sharing economy related stuff, which might be expected, but also on how to think differently about supporting working parents. Um, you know, I don't want to rattle off the same stats that we probably all know at this point about how far behind, egregiously far behind U.S. federal policy is in terms of maternity and paternity leave. And you see companies, even just in the last few months, more and more stepping up and doing, I think, really great sort of um, revolutionary uh, things to support parents at all stages, you know, in all different ways. But I, I've been helping companies do that. So I've been consulting a lot, which is great. And honestly, my my real answer is that as a working parent myself, I've been investing in my kids, and I'm I feel like that's a really big deal and a really valuable thing, and I feel really lucky that I've been able to do it. So I'm not, um, you know, I, I wrote this book that was a lot of work. I'm doing consulting. I'm hanging with my kids. I'm speaking a lot, um, and I'm serving on different boards like Habitat that really mean a lot to me. And it's it's funny. I have a lot of small pieces right now and I anticipate kind of launching something new over coming months but probably not until my littlest is a year old so stay well, tuned on on that note uh, I gotta go walk little Evie over to the uh, local Methodist church for her sing-along class oh my <laughs> gosh well that's a perfect segue <laughs> well excellent well thank you so much for for your time and, and for your stories and absolutely everyone check out Claywater Brick I'll post a link to it on the website but thank you That was great. Definitely check out Jessica's book. And thanks for listening to the podcast. As always, you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out the archives, to get the app for free, to subscribe on iTunes. And if you do subscribe on iTunes, you can leave a review on iTunes for everyone to see. That helps other people who are interested in foreign policy, international development, and just good podcasts like mine to, to discover it. So thank you in advance for doing that, for taking the time to, to write the review. Thank you all for listening. As always, you can also get in touch with me via globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg if you have any suggestions of, of people I should interview or topics I should cover. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.